This is a different perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And hello and welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined with by my guest, Susan Zwiatek, in just a moment. But I wanted to explain something, and I, I kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, on August 10th, we had coming through here what was called a derecho, which is uh, defined as an inland hurricane. Uh, top wind speeds were 145 miles an hour. Now, it's uh, not a hurricane in the sense that you get a lot of rain and it lasts for hours and hours. It was a short-lived storm, but it did major damage here. Our county was, 98% uh, of the people in our county lost power. We lost the cable, and it, the other counties had equal damage. Uh, we just were hit the worst, but other counties had similar damage. I think like 4,000 Telephone poles were knocked down, which took out the power, and I was without power for days and days and days. And when we finally got it back, we had no cable, therefore no internet. And uh, once we got that back up going, something else happened, and we lost the internet again. And I was doing what I needed to do in the grocery store in this little restaurant they have where they were allowing us to use our their Wi-Fi to do email and things like that, but couldn't do the radio show from there. So we've had to... Uh, use kind of the best of for a number of weeks here. And I kind of wanted to apologize, but there's really nothing that we could do about it, given the circumstances. I think we're to the point where that has all been worked out and will be good to run now with new shows for quite a while, as long as I can find guests. <laughs> They'll agree to come on the show, which is a whole other story, by the way. But anyway, I wanted to make it clear that it was circumstances beyond my control that a caused the kind of the gap in putting out new programs. We got a couple in there as things worked out and then we lost the cable again. But, but we're now, I hope, good to go forever at this point. As I said, I'm going to be joined by Susan Zwiatek. She was uh, born in Washington, D.C., but she spent years growing, growing up in Denver, Colorado. And I mention that only because I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Actually, Aurora, and I'm sure she knows where that is. Mm -hmm. And since 1970, she's been living near Fairfax, Virginia. And as a child, she read everything in school in the school library on UFOs and other anomalies. And in 1966, when Barney and Betty Hill's Interrupted Journey exploded under the pages of Look Magazine, I remember that, uh, she was hooked on UFOs and abductions. Uh, she has been greatly influenced by the writings of researchers Bud Hopkins and Dr. David Jacobs whom she later knew as colleagues and friends. She holds a BFA degree from the Maryland Institute College of Art, Baltimore, and followed up that with a six-month technology immersion program. She's worked extensively supporting various federal agencies in the DOD and health agencies as a technical editor and quality assurance. 
Along the way, she met folks from the DC-based Fund for UFO Research, FUFOR, as we who like acronyms call it, and worked with such legendary nightcap researchers as Dick Hall, Don Berliner, and Dr. Bruce McAbee. Rob Zwiatek was on the FUFOR, FUFOR Executive Committee, and it's obvious how that meeting turned out since they ended up getting married. And they've been married since 1994. Susan organized the 1999 MUFON International Symposium just outside Washington, D.C. in Arlington, Virginia. And she has served on the MUFON as MUFON Virginia State Director since the summer of 2003. And she holds monthly meetings either in person or virtually through Zoom. Um, Susan collaborated with others to launch the electronic magazine Journal of Abduction Encounter Research, JAR, in 2007 and developed the art for its masthead. And JAR continues today in a reborn online incarnation. She organized an annual conference for the International Fortean Organization, INFO, uh, since 19... 19. <laughs> I've just fallen into the 20th century, folks, since 2014, as well as sponsoring local UFO conferences and speakers. She has lectured widely, and her artwork appears in many books, such as Ron Story's Extraterrestrial Encyclopedia and Dick Hall's UFO Evidence Part 2. She has created many covers for FUFOR and the UFO Research Coalition Project. She created the cover for and performed QC and pre-press work for Delphos, a coalition publication dealing with the extensive evidence and the importance of 1971 Delphos, Kansas, physical trace case. I went through that whole long thing for one reason, people. There are very few women involved in UFO research that we can bring on the program, and I search for them quite a bit because I think it's important to involve everybody. But here's a woman with great credentials and has a long history in UFO research, and I think we're going to have a good conversation about that now that I've wasted so much time on it. Susan Zwiatek, <laughs> welcome to A Different Perspective. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, I thought we, we talked about, communicated about things that we would like to talk about on this. And I, th I think the first thing I wanted to get into is, you knew Don Berliner, you of course knew Stan Friedman, you know me. Um, right. And Don Berliner and Stan Friedman wrote a book called Crash at Corona, which is about the Roswell UFO crash. And they couldn't use UFO crash at Roswell because Don Schmidt and I got that title first. Uh, right. But there were some problems with that book, not to mention the plagiarism that shows up repeatedly in it, which we won't go into <laughs> in depth. But um, one of their main witnesses was Gerald Anderson, who claimed as a five-year-old boy he'd been on the plains of San Augustine, seen the crash UFO, seen the archaeologist that showed up there and uh, with his family had been threatened by the military. Uh, there was a controversy about that. Uh, we learned that um, Gerald Anderson had been less than candid in some of his dealings with people and basically forged a couple of documents and that sort of thing. Um, right. What was the relationship between Don Berliner and Stan Friedman? Do you, you, you have a feeling for that? And why was Don Berliner brought in to help Stan with the book? Exactly. Well, I think that they had a pretty good friendship going with the book. Maybe it got strained at times, but... In fact, we were asking at the time, Don, why did Stan reach out to you? He goes, because Stan really can't write. That was his explanation at the time. So um, that's that's how, how Don got involved, because, of course, that's his main thing. He's a writer, 100%, and mostly in conventional aviation and space uh, titles, not so much in UFOs, though he's written a few, obviously. He served on 
the uh, in NICAP and certainly on the, the head of the of the fund for UFO research at times. So he certainly checked out with UFOs. But uh, that was what I was told. Now they seem to have a real push pull and kind of kept it together. And I think the problem with the Gerald Anderson material is they didn't have much time between the deadline and when they got that material. Uh, I, I got the impression at the time that Don Berliner wished that they had more time to vet it, but it was one of these things, you know, we have to be first, you know, get it in the book. They got it in the book. No sooner had they got it in the book and the book was out that, uh, you know, that's when Don had the, you know, buyer's remorse and he just wanted to write a very, very damning and complete statement, uh, just separating themselves from the Gerald Anderson material. But, you know, it's one of these things that it seemed like Stan, was not too congenial about that, and he really pushed back on that. But uh, the point is, that's when their friendship really frayed. And uh, Don said, "We, you know, we've got to get this out there." So they finally got a repudiation out there. But you know, no, no sooner had the ink dried on that, and um, you know, then you have Stan Friedman kind of cozying up to the Gerald Anderson story again and kind of repudiating the repudiation. So after that, they, I don't think they spoke much. Don is still alive and kicking he's in michigan somewhere and um you know still has all his faculties when he moved uh, i guess it's been about a year now we uh we were there like the last weekend he was in the washington area and uh seeing him pack up his last few items but um so he's still as far as i know he's sharp as attack still still going strong uh, at least uh, a couple months ago i, I was was uh, aware of that you know we have these little confabs in kalamazoo and he's threatened to uh, show up a couple times though he never has and then of course covid has settled in on all of us so uh, so i haven't seen don and i mean maybe it's been a uh, year and a half because it was in the summer when he moved but uh, and he drove himself to michigan so he's still you could still probably uh, get him in a conversation but <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that was an interesting time, you well, know, Don, with uh, them sort of breaking up over that. Well, Don had an opportunity to meet Gerald Anderson in person. Uh, they went to, I think, to Stan and Don went to New Mexico, and Gerald Anderson was showing him the alleged crash site um, on the plains of San Augustine right. near Horse Springs and that sort of thing. I don't understand the um, the timing of this thing. It doesn't seem like there was that big of a push that he would have had time to vet Anderson uh, Don and I had, uh, I had, I was the first one to talk to Anderson, as a matter of fact, and Don and I okay. rejected his tale pretty quickly because we had found some significant discrepancies in it, uh, and that our book came out long before, uh, maybe not long, but months before a crash at Corona, so there was there was some problem with the Anderson story there, um, and we had this uh, conference in Chicago. And Don and Stan were both there to extensively or uh, ostensibly talk about the Gerald Anderson story. Anderson was invited to be there to hold up his end of the discussion and refused to show up. So I'm a little bit confused about this 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 timing thing. It seemed that they would have had more. Did, and I think Don Berliner would have done it, uh, but had more time to vet um, Anderson, but I think Stan wanted the Anderson's tale in the in the book because here's a guy exactly. who was talk, talking about firsthand knowledge or firsthand witnessing the, the the bodies over on the plains of San Augustine, and Stan's baby was his second crash over on the plains of San Augustine. Um, right. But um, I, I I thought that was that was interesting that that uh, Anderson 
claimed to have been a Navy SEAL, for example, and then we found out that wasn't true. And I showed Stan the information on it that Anderson hadn't been a Navy SEAL and that um, he still was was um, endorsing the, the Gerald Anderson tale after after he had, after Anderson admitted forging the phone bills to make me look bad, forging other documents to kind of bolster his story right. and that sort of thing. So I was a little bit yeah, surprised about that. I remember the phone bills were... were crucial to this whole thing or somehow when, once someone forges something, you know, that's it. But, you know, I mean, we, we have these true ufology all the time. You know, we have people holding on to Larry for the longest time over Rendlesham. You know, we have uh, oh. so many personalities like that. We have the Bob Lazars and they always seem to find a champion who is, has a relatively good, reputation like buoying them up you know with, with uh, all these characters I, I that part is always i think once people invest a certain amount of emotional energy in a witness they really have a hard time dropping it and um we've seen that over and over but anyway not to be well, that dead horse well I, i'm going to beat it a little bit more because frankly i can't okay <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the thing that got me, and I, I mentioned the plagiarism. There's a long section of an interview with Bill Brazel in the book, Crash at Corona. And it's an interview that Don okay. Schmidt and I conducted. Neither Stan nor Don Berliner were there. It's in our book first. And we had sent, I guess we'd sent a copy of the audio tape, because there's only an audio tape of it, to the Fund for UFO Research. And I don't know whether they used that as the basis for it, but but they, they published this without any credit or attribution of where it came from which was really kind of annoying. But what they did, and I don't, I shouldn't say they, what Stan did was insert a word into the interview, a crucial word, because we're talking about the four guys that came to visit Matt, Bill Brazel. Bill Brazel said that he had some pieces of debris and that he uh, uh, had been showing them around in Corona, New Mexico, debris of the, the crashed UFO. And I'm going to have to stop myself there because I'm coming up okay. against the time constraints. <laughs> uh, I will finish the tale after we take this quick break, but I do want to thank those of you who have purchased the best of Project Blue Book, which is my latest book on UFOs. It's been up and down on the Amazon bestseller list. If you enjoyed it, please rate it, because that kind of helps, and write a review if you'd like the book, because that helps spread the word, and it, it, it um, shows people what's going on in the world of ufos and be sure to take a look at encounter in the desert and roswell in the 21st century we will be back right after this with susan zwiatek talking about ufos so stick around Tech, and when I say here, it means we're conversing, but we are practicing social distancing in this world of COVID virus. I mentioned that so you don't think we're violating any rules by being in the same room chatting with one another, although I don't think either one of us is affected, infected. When we went away, I was dominated in conversation with my tale of Bill Brazel. Now, he's the son of the rancher who found the crash near Corona, New Mexico, the Roswell crash, picked up pieces of debris and was showing them around in a bar in Corona. And a few days later, some Air Force people showed up wanting to, well, basically confiscate the, the debris he had. And, 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 and Brazel told Don Schmidt and me about this when we 
interviewed him in, in New Mexico in 1989. And the, the, the point was it, was, it was clear what was going on. Now, that whole conversation was published in UFO Crash at Roswell, and then uh, part of, parts of it were published in Crash at Corona. But what Stan had done, and I say Stan because I don't think Don Berliner would have done this, in, we're talking about the description of the people who had come to visit Bill Brazel. And Brazel was always clear that it was four white soldiers. Stan inserted the word black between Sarge, or it, in, in the context of this story, that one of, the, one of the individuals was black, a black NCO, black sergeant had come out with this Captain Anderson, or, or um, I think it was Anderson was the name he gave. He wasn't sure what it was. Armstrong, Captain Armstrong. He wasn't sure the name. So what he had done was alter the context of the discussion by inserting this word. And when he was asked about it by another guy, and this is, for those of you who are interested, you can follow up on it um, on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because I, I did a long segment about this. But uh, Friedman had said that Bill Brazel used a racially charged word when he was describing the sergeant. And I'm sure you all can figure out what that racially charged word would be. But he didn't say that. And I have the tape, which proves it. But I also called Bill and asked him about it specifically. And Bill Brazel said, no, he didn't. He didn't think there were there was any black. There was not a black soldier with him. They were all the white soldiers. And and that kind of manipulation of the data. And I think he did that to uh, underscore the validity of the Gerald Anderson testimony, because Anderson was talking about a black uh, NCO who was very mean that came out to the plains of San Augustine when they were found there. So it was another problem with the story. But um, okay. I, th I thought it was interesting, and, and, and Susan, you can jump in with your um, observations here. I thought it was interesting that um, Don Berliner wrote the book and Stan then complained that he didn't have enough time to review the galley proofs or the uh, page proofs before it went to press. So any mistakes that were made like that, he always kind of blamed on Don Berliner. <laughs> well, it's funny, because I know Don would not have inserted a word like that. I mean, uh, that's just, that does not, uh, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, I, the Don Berliner that I know and is still around, I, I, I just can't see him doing something like that. So I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, put, uh, you know, coals on the, the head of the dead here. And, and, you know, we stayed good friends with uh, Stan all these years and, um, you know, sorry to see him go in such a way. He didn't even get to say goodbye to his wife. But in any case, that is more of the kind of style that, you know, Stan would probably have had. But, um, you know, he's done a couple stunts over the years that were kind of disturbing. But overall, well, since you mentioned some just since you mentioned some disturbing stunts, what would what give us an example of a <laughs> disturbing stunt? Uh oh. Um, let's see. You know, I, I don't have the particulars in front of me, but I remember the fund had a, a research uh, article. Uh, in uh, anyway, it, and it was out there. You know, we had we had distributed it for uh, a year with a limited press or something, and then it was. Um, you know, it was out of press, you know, let's face it, the fund, we were all volunteers. We did have um, an, an organization that, that mailed stuff out for us. But, you know, there's a lot of work to do, as you know. And, you know, the, the website was just barely there in the, these early days. And uh, there's a lot of work for individual volunteers to do. And we, we, weren't sell, we weren't selling it anymore. We just didn't have it anymore. So Stan just put his own cover on it and started selling it. 
you know, and it's just uh, Stephen Greer did the same thing. You know, it just seems like uh, we're, we're kind of caught with that. But um, so he started distributing. Well, we got to get it out there. You know, it's this whole thing. When somebody owns material, no matter how you really think it should be out there or, or, or not, it's not your decision to make to just slap a new cover on it and sell it. You know, and uh, so we've run into that a couple times with uh, and sometimes it's just ne- we just you know, weren't able to get it out there again and get another printing done. And sometimes there was a reason why we were not distributing something like maybe something needed to be taken back and uh, changed. Maybe there was an error that we found. So it's not really, you know, what if I took one of your books from eight years ago, slapped a new cover on it, started selling it. You, know, you would not like that because first of all, you'd say that's my material. Second of all, you'd say, you know what? I wrote a book that cleaned up a lot of the misconceptions in that book. And I don't like that old information going out. So, um, Things like that. But once we said stop, he did stop. So unlike Stephen Greer, who had to have a, you know, an attorney send him a note, but that's another story for another day. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, well, you know, that, that's, that's, that's just the, the type of, of thing sometimes that would happen. Well, I know that um, <laughs> Stan was a big proponent of MJ-12 and Don Berliner got right. the, um, right. got the uh, operations manual, the, what is it, ASM-101? Uh, in the mail in, in a yeah, similar SLM fashion or whatever yeah yeah in a similar right. fashion that that the original document showed up and i if my if i remember correctly don thought it was a hoax don don didn't think much of it but stan took it and ran with it as well is is that yeah, in- that was another thing that disturbed don but you know once again the truth is somewhere in between like don berliner put a lid on it you know we talk about a lid with a uh, Biden here, but but he really put a lid on it and said, let's let's sit on this thing and really think about it. But that, that didn't sit well with the rest of the fund because they said, we can't just sit on it. This is a hot potato. We need to get it vetted and get it circulating among important, you know, and get it out well, there. So, well, let me let me interrupt here. Here we you, go. Again. You said you said okay. something that was very important. You, you we need to get it vetted. And and that's the one thing right, I see lacking, to, we, lacking in UFO right. research is vetting the people we need. Right. And what happened with Don, with his SOM1 or whatever the heck it was, I remember Don finally gave it up, so to speak, gave up the sitting on it idea when people were saying, Don, they're selling copies of it at gun shows. And that's when he finally had to realize that, you know, the cat was out of the bag a, a long time ago. And, uh, how, you know, it's time you know, to, uh, you know. Do you know how they got to the gun shows? How that doc? How well, that doc- <clears throat> and I, I asked this. It's just... Uh, well, I asked this. I asked this question because I got a call from a friend many, many years ago, and said there was an MJ12 document at the local gun show. So I went to the gun show and, fi- and saw it. So yes, they were selling it at gun shows. Uh, I never understood how he got it. Um, so, but you yeah, don't know it's, how it's it- very. It's a very strange process. I mean, who knows what the hell's going on with these things? But for a long time, it was like a genie in the bottle. It was captured. You know, it was. No, it wasn't really circulating. You know, a couple, you know, people got it in the mail or it showed up in their mailbox or whatever it was. And that was it. You know, it wasn't really circulating. I think it was a film, wasn't it? Film. I think that yeah, it was, one was showed up as film. Yeah, it was 35 millimeter right. film. I think it was the same way that it, the, the original MJ-12 document showed up uh, allegedly to Jamie Shandera's house. Uh, yeah, I think, I ironically, think he, in 19... 19- 1987, that was my big debut on you know, organized ufology. I just wandered down to American University here in Washington, and the fund had paired up with MUFON to host 
the symposium at American University. And I was just, you know, fresh out of college and just, you know, wet behind the ears. And I was like, wow, this is so exciting. You know, and MJ-12 was being muttered in the hallways. And you felt like like the scales are coming off everyone's eyes. You know, uh, disclosure, we didn't use that term, but, you know, the, the government has to come forward. Everybody's talking MJ-12. And it was just really a fascinating Fascinating time, you know, especially me just walking in as a neophyte in, 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 as far as organizers. Ufology goes, I kept up with the reading all these years because back then you could read everything, you know, pretty much. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that was a whole, whole new thing. Stan Friedman was swaggering around and it was uh, MJ-12 was all over the place. But, yeah, it's interesting how that, how that burst on the scene and, you know, here, here we are today. What well, is, the Kevin, let me ask you, what, what is your take on, on Roswell today? I heard that you've gotten more jaded. And, well, let's uh, let's put that let's put that on the back burner for a moment. Because okay. Because okay. I had I had a, a an agenda here, which we we diverted okay. from. But I was going to bring okay. bring that up, and and we I'll certainly answer that question um, before we get done. Uh, but the thing I understood was the film it showed up as undeveloped film to Don Berliner, and he had to have the film developed. And so that's why that's I don't understand, and I don't understand. I don't understand how the manual got out into another arena, because clearly it's it's all well, from the same generation of, of, of copies. Right, and he he really had a clamp on that thing. I mean, he was very uh, very particular about it. I mean, we, you know, he would hand the document around the printed version uh, at the meetings, but then he'd always want it back. He was, you know, he just. He just wanted to sit on it. You know, it's like, Don, you can't sit on it forever. We have to have some, some other eyes on this thing. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's just hard to, it's hard to imagine when people don't understand. Like before the Internet was really um, as, as strong as it is today and so forth. You know, now we think, well, you could never put a lid on something like that. It might last 24 hours. But, no, it lasted for weeks. I don't know how long. Maybe months even. Several weeks. It's and then, my like I said, it's, go ahead. Well, it's my impression that Don Berliner believes it's a hoax. Is that correct? I think he thought it was a very good hoax. Now, later, I can't go into it, but later, um, you know, I can't go into it because of time. But <laughs> as, you know, as I, I sent you my um, my regular resume, too, I mean, I worked at um, USAPA, U.S. Army Publishing Agency. It was a full agency at that time. And we dealt with a lot of very old legacy material. And so structurally, I always thought it was very interesting. If this is a phony, which it probably is, but it was done very well. It was it, it matched up well with that time period and how documents looked. Oh, you know, there's no question about whoever wrote it used uh, had a had a, a a sample of what these army manuals looked like to to Correct. follow along and and put it together in that respect. But I just wanted to make sure that. I was on the same page with Don Berliner that this is probably a hoax. I think the whole MJ-12 thing is a hoax, going back even to the Eisenhower briefing documents, and I think my audience knows well where I stand on that. Although right. when I first saw the documents, I was very impressed with them, and I thought, this is great. This is wonderful. This is wonderful to have this kind of a document. But then I found the fatal flaw, and I think everybody else has found what they think of as a fatal flaw as well. And for those of you who are interested, yes, it's on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I think I call it the fatal flaw in, in the MJ-12 Eisenhower briefing document. <laughs> Look up Eisenhower briefing document. Um, since you, you know, brought I, up I think a lot of us 
I think a lot of us feel like this was an emulation of potentially what the working group would look like. And maybe this was a way to leak the concept out. I don't know. It's an idea. Uh, If we look at what um, Brad Sparks and Barry Greenwood, I think it was, presented at a MUFON conference about how that whole thing came about and the Bob Pratt secret papers and how this was actually designed as a novel by Bill Moore and Richard Doty long before the MJ-12 papers showed up. And now we see the whole thing in the MJ-12 papers come out as they were uh, created for this for this novel that they apparently couldn't sell at some point. And they, they, were, they brought in Don, uh, Bob Pratt, I think, as the, the writer for that. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment. I'm just going to preface this a little bit because you brought up Roswell and in the things that we were going to talk about, you wanted to talk about the Ramey memo, and I've done a lot of work on that. Not that I wanted to. I keep getting dragged into that one. Um, and your impressions of it, maybe we can come to some consensus of what's going on with the Ramey memo and that sort of thing. And I also uh, wanted to point out that there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at XZA xzbn.net I stumble over that because I want to say x uh, xzbn.net to keep my my pals in Canada and England happy about that but you go to the go to the website there's an awful lot of interesting uh, listings on the side you can see what programs would uh, interest you and have some fun doing that as well so you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. I'm here with Susan Wyatek. We will be back to talk about the Ramey Memo right after this. So please stick around. We're talking about UFOs. She's the uh, Virginia State Director for MUFON, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit as well, maybe uh, about some of the interesting cases going on in Virginia with uh, the MUFON. But when we went away, I had mentioned, I think we kind of dealt with MJ-12 to the point where we didn't need to talk about it anymore. I think everybody knows my feelings on it, and I think most people understand that this was a hoax. It was a uh, an interesting hoax, and it certainly, certainly gathered an awful lot of attention into the UFO community when the when it was released. But uh, there were turns out there were many, many problems with it. And as I say, take a look at my blog, and you'll be able to see some of that. But when we went away, I'd mentioned this uh, Ramey memo. Now, in 1947, uh, the 509 Bomb Group, which is the point, the organization that found the UFO or had it brought to them in Roswell, New Mexico, was a subordinate unit to the 8th Air Force, which was headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. General Roger Ramey was a commanding officer of the 8th Air Force at the time. And they brought some of the debris to uh, from, from, from New Mexico to Fort Worth so that uh, General Ramey could look at it. Now, there are a number of photographs taken in General Ramey's office. There's actually seven of them. Uh, six taken by a fellow named J. Bond Johnson, who was a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And then a seventh one, and I suspect it was taken by the public information officer at the base because it doesn't match the 
um, quality of, of the photographs taken by the reporter. Uh, there's a difference in the lighting. There's a difference in uh, a lot of things. And, and you can see stuff had been moved around. But in one of the pictures, actually in two of the pictures taken with uh, General Ramey, he's holding a piece of paper in his hand. One of them you can't really see much. But the other one, the way he's holding it and the way the photographs work, when you blow up the picture, you can begin to see words on it. You can begin to see the writing on it. And since the mid-1990s, there's been a great controversy about the Ramey memo. What's on the Ramey memo? Can we read the Ramey memo? And uh, I know I've been involved in a couple of high-tech uh, examinations of the memo. And I think Stan at one time got the cleanest scan of the memo, a photographic scan, so that it could be researched by others. And you were talking about, I think, um, when you saw the memo... Uh, Tell me, tell me about how you actually saw the memo for the first time and what, what uh, your impressions were. Yeah, I remember seeing those original photographs, of course, with, with Roswell in uh, Ramey's office and all that, or the uh, Ramey's holding it up or whatever. But, um, it, you know, you never really saw it clear enough to think that that piece of paper in his hand could have possibly had to do with the Roswell incident. But later, when uh, I believe it was in a hotel, I think it was at a, a, a MUFON conference, Rob and I can't remember, but we were in a hotel room, and that's when uh, Stan brought it out. And it was quite large, what he had, and it was much more detailed than you'd ever seen before. And you could make out several words. I think it was about the disc, and I think it was, I, I thought it said, I think I came up with victims. That was the word that I came up with, and that's, of course, that's uh, no, not everybody agrees, but uh, I feel definitely, to me, it indicated that it was about the Roswell crash. There was a disc. Uh, it, a lot of, you know, you can pick out a lot of key words, and I thought it said victims. That was my impression, but, of course, I could be subject to, to uh, error here because everybody's uh, kind of picking at it. But, you know, I have an art background, and I've worked in the darkroom quite a bit, and there is... Unlike digital photography, which is extremely, uh, these days, you know, the pixels are amazing. But back then, I mean, really, you're at the limit of what the silver halide crystals can do, and there's only so much you can do. And like, like you said, uh, it's beyond the imagery. The only research that really can be done would be linguistic, the linguistic study of potential words and the types of words that would have been used by the author. And that, that's, I think that's the only approach that is left to be taken with this. Well, I think the, the, the thing that I've always said is that I mean, there are words you can read with a magnifying glass on a good copy of it. I, mean, I think well, Weather Balloon shows up, Fort Worth, Texas shows up, right. but, but Ramey yeah, is but... holding it in his hand and it's kind of crunched in his hand and it's not really co facing the ca camera and there's kind of folds in it. So that kind of blurs things out a little bit. But there's words you can see and given the, the timing, given where Ramey is, the logical assumption is this deals with the Roswell Roswell crash. Um, but it was taken, it was not taken by 35 millimeter film. I think you mentioned 35 millimeter film. It was on a speed graphic camera and I think it was a, what is it, a four by five negative? So it was a large, it's not that big. It's not that big. What is it, two by, two by three negative? I've seen the negative. I've actually seen the negative. I've been I think it's two by three. But I still think, you know, you are just coming up against the limits of you oh, know, molecules and so forth, you know. I, so. I know that there has been a study done where they were using magnifying equipment that took it down basically the molecular level and tried to right. to read it that way. 
and and you get to the point where it's, there's going to be no nothing more you can do. We've magnified it. We've uh, scanned it. We've done everything we can using our modern technology. And and I've I've seen some of the scanning going on, and it takes literally hours to scan the negative. And what they do is they scan the whole negative instead of just that one small portion. They want to have the whole context in in place for it. Right. Um, but when you're, I, I know that, and I should mention David Rudiak, because he's done an awful lot of work on that, and he is a, right. a strong proponent of vi- victims of the wreck. Um, I think it's victims it, of the wreck. I, I, that's how I, that's what I, that's how I see it. <laughs> the but. problem is, and, and David, David wasn't, I, I David, uh, was trying to come up with words that began with a V that, that fit the number of letters that you could see there, and there weren't many Many, but somebody in an examination of it, and I think this was on a. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was on the program with Josh Josh Gates in his Expedition Unknown, with looking at the Ramey memo, and I was there and I got to meet Josh Gates, which is the only reason I went to do do it. I wanted to meet Josh Gates <laughs> because I've been watching his show on the Sci Fi Channel. But in looking at that, and and one of the guys in the scans they had made, it came up with the idea. It said viewing of the wreck. And it fits the the criterion of the number of letters that would be in uh, yeah letters in the in the wording of it, and if it says viewing of the wreck, that really changes the whole context, because victims implies there was some kind of crew, and viewing says we just saw it, doesn't say anything about about right. a a crew, and so that's one of the key words, and it has not been defined to the point where you can you can say. Um, victims of the wreck. And I've looked at the thing many, many times, and I've looked at it in many different levels of man- magnification under many different scans, including a couple of times at the uh, special collections at the University of Texas at Arlington. Um, and I can see it both ways. It depends on my mood. I can see viewing. I can see victims of the yeah. wreck. <laughs> but the problem is it's kind of faces in the clouds. We're kind of seeing what we want to see. Yeah, I agree. I you could take it either way. I mean, it's not definitive either way. Uh, definitely not definitive either way. But um, but something happened. Something big happened, and those well placed people I don't think would have been fooled by a weather balloon. And plus the the amount of debris and the animals wouldn't cross it. That just wouldn't be uh, the thing with a mogul balloon uh, train. It's the mogul balloon is just like a weather balloon bigger and bigger and longer and longer, but it doesn't really have a lot of exotic materials. At least that's my understanding. I remember uh, with, uh, you know, Rob was was talking a lot to, uh, you know, the author of those two reports, you know, the Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction, and Case Closed, you know, Uh, Captain James McAndrew. He was talking to McAndrew or Colonel Weaver? I believe it was McAndrew, the young guy, that... uh, his office was only like 50 feet from Rob's office at the time. Very strange. But he was able to have him just bring out of the building uh, part of a mogul balloon target. And Rob took those pictures, which, of course, have been uh, used in a lot of different books now. But, uh, you know, it just wasn't – I just can't see anybody being really uh, thrown for a loop on that. And, and just – of course, it varies, depends on the witness about how, how big the debris field was. But we understand it was big enough and dense enough that the animals wouldn't cross it. So that's, I have a hard time with 
you know, mogul balloons, it, it, there's not much to it. It's mostly space and then strings and, you know, there's not much to it. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's tall, but it doesn't really amount to much. So I don't know. That's, that's been my uh, thing. And then originally all those shipments, so many people were, sh- were shipping, uh, uh, you know, large transport vehicles were, were going all around, you know, and why would that be happening if this was just a mistake? I just can't see that press release being written over, uh, a fancy weather balloon. That's uh, but anyway, that's always been my take on it. And then well, the of course thing, we have the search later. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the one thing about the mogul balloon, and and we <laughs> we have to thank Colonel Richard Weaver, who was the the leader of the Air Force investigation. We have him to thank. Is he found Dr. Albert Crary's field notes and then his regular diary on the flights, and published those in the Air Force report. So if you go through the Air Force report, you can find all of that stuff. And what's important is the only flight that's missing uh, is flight number four, and there's no record of it. It wasn't mentioned in in the in the records because it didn't fly. Uh, Crary's diary right. says says no flight today because of clouds. They were not allowed to fly in cloudy weather because of the long array train. By the time they got to New Mexico, and and the things that they published have been kind of deceptive. Uh, the, the the length of the, the uh, array train had been reduced to about 400 feet as opposed to the 600 feet that they were flying back east. But they were not allowed to fly at night and they were not to fly, allowed to fly in cloudy weather because these things would pose a threat to na- aerial navigation. So Dar- Dr. Curry's diary says the flight was canceled. So there was no flight right, number right, four. And, uh, and, right, and, right. and to me that... John brings that out in his, his book. Pardon me, who does? <laughs> Now, John Steiger, with his uh, recent book that he came out, the UFO Trilogy, Dramas for the Stage, he has a Roswell uh, trial, courtroom drama in there with the characters. And that's that's one thing that's that's brought up that, uh, you know, flight number four never happened. They, they made a note of it that the conditions were not good. And then the other side of the coin is, oh, but they waited a few hours and, and conditions improved and then they did launch it. Well, I don't see any evidence for that. That's just somebody saying that, Oh, and conditions improved. It was when he made his notes. He did it a little premature because really it it was launched. Um, but I still don't think it doesn't matter what's written in the um, the the log there. It, it, to me, it just doesn't explain the deposit on the ranch, the debris field. That even the the smallest description that people have, it just doesn't. In my mind, this just doesn't comport with a mogul balloon train. It's not working for me. <laughs> I think that I think the thing we have to remember is Dr. Crary was the leader of the expedition. He knew what was going on. He said the flight was canceled. End of story. I don't right. understand why the skeptics do not understand that. Uh, I covered it at length in Roswell in the 21st century. There's a long, there was a long, long, um, detailed explanation of all of this in a, in an appendix about the Mogul balloon. What happened was. And Charles Moore, who was also involved in the mogul launches in New Mexico, I talked to him a couple of times, been to his house, as a matter of fact, in Socorro, uh, told me okay. told me that uh, once the b- balloons were inflated, they couldn't get the, the helium back out of the balloon. So when the flight was canceled, they had to do something with the balloons. And what they would do is they would launch a small cluster of balloons, maybe with a mi- one microphone on it to test various things. And there's descriptions in other parts of the documentation of what the cluster of balloons is. So when they say, well, they launched it later, no, they didn't. They launched a, a small cluster of balloons, three or four balloons lifting something up, not a mogul array. And there is absolutely no documentation of any any 
uh, data being recovered from flight number four. Flight number four was canceled. It did not fly. It cannot possibly be the explanation for uh, the the events in Roswell. Um, so I always like to make that right. clear, but um, I sometimes get overly enthusiastic in my uh, right. <laughs> defense of them picking up something that was other than the mogul balloon. Right. Well, so, I, I did have that. I know we're probably out of time, but I just had that one anecdote, which is just a tiny little thing that does add to uh, the credence to the Roswell incident of, of being of something of import. Well, and, I will. Uh, I don't I have will, time for it. I will note that. Uh, <laughs> We'll note that McAndrew called me a number of times, and he kept saying, "You can tell me the truth. You don't really believe this, do you?" And uh, you could you can really? go back on it. It's just between us, between us. And I I thought, no, that's not the way it is. Yeah, you're right on the time though. We're getting right up against it. Um, you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. I'm joined by Susan Swiatek. We're talking UFOs. We're talking Roswell and a lot of other things. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. I am here with Susan Swiatek. We're talking UFOs. We've been talking Roswell. She posed a question to me a while back that I didn't answer, and I said I would answer it later on in the program. And if I don't do it now, it's not going to get answered. When I did Roswell in the 21st century, I was looking at it as a cold case. Let's take all the information that has been gathered by all the various sources and all the various researchers and all the various pieces of it, put it all together and see if we can distill something. And by this point, we'd seen that some of the really credible witnesses that we thought were credible, Glenn Dennis, for example, uh, talking about the caskets and, and the nurse uh, who told him about the autopsy or the preliminary autopsy at the base, um, had fallen by the wayside because we couldn't verify the nurse's name. He gave us a name. We tried to verify it. And I should point out Vic Golubic. Uh, spent a great deal of time and effort looking for it, uh, as as did some of the rest of us, and could not find any reference to a nurse by the name Naomi Self in the Army records. And they had records of like 125,000 nurses that had served in the military. And uh, when confronted with that, well, Glenn Dennis changed his story. And that, to me, just killed his credibility. So I look at all of that in the uh, Roswell in the 21st century. And what I concluded was the information that we had in the early 1990s, which was very robust and filled with really wonderful witnesses, wasn't quite as robust as I had thought. And some of the witnesses weren't quite as credible as we had hoped. I look at um, Colonel Edwin Easley, however. He was the provost marshal, provost marshal being the chief of police on the base, or like the chief of police, told me specifically, I, I asked him in a, in a conversation, I said to him, oh, I... I said, are we following the right path? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, let me put it this way, it's not the wrong path. Now, here's a guy who's very credible. I have no reason to doubt what he's saying. So when I look at all of this stuff, I say, I got this very credible guy. Uh, Bill Brazel talking about picking up the pieces of the debris, very credible guy. So we have those sorts of things going on there. Could it been something of terrestrial manufacture? Certainly. Do I think it was extra 
uh, of terrestrial manufacture? Probably not. But I'm, I'm not willing now to take that big leap to say this absolutely proves extraterrestrial visitation. I lean in that direction, but I don't have what I would, would like to make that final leap to the extraterrestrial. So I stand back a little bit from where I did years ago and say, it's a very interesting case. Everybody agrees something fell at Roswell. The disagreement is exactly what it was. I know it wasn't Mogul. I have seen no other experimentation or any other explanation from a terrestrial source that would explain it. That, for me, is interesting, but just not enough for me to leap over into the extraterrestrial camp. That, Susan, is my explanation or my answer to your question. All right. Well, th thanks for filling us in on that. <laughs> Uh, I, thought... I will get your latest book. I will. I will get your latest book. And, and, and I, I have to say I'm a little bit more in the extraterrestrial camp than you, but I've been troubled by so many wacky so-called witnesses that have fallen apart. The Glenn Dennis thing with the, the German nurse, that really broke my heart when that fell apart because he always seems so, uh, so someone reliable, but whatever. Well, that's, that's the thing. And, and he just... Um... It was clear he was making up making up the tale. I know that Tom Carey um, still accepts the accepts the story. I don't think uh, Don Schmidt is quite as happy with it as as he was at one time. Uh, but I wanted to get quickly into um, is it John Guerra's biography of George Filer, Strange Craft. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, that's another friend of mine that was a Washingtonian and. Uh, Anyway, yeah, it was interesting. That was an interesting book. But I agreed with your take on it. I read your review of it. You wished that he had gotten more detailed and more involved in some of uh, what he had to say. It was kind of like an easy read once over lately, uh, almost an outline for well, a more detailed book. But let's I, take a, it was let's enjoyable. Take a, let's take a step back here. What we're talking about here is the Fort, Fort Dix alien incident. The story is that, I think it was 1973, George Filer is assigned to... to the Air Force side of the Fort Dix complex, and I forget the name of the, oh, I think McGuire Air Force Base, I think it is. So it's Fort Dix McGuire. And he arrives at work, and there's all these lights on the, on the uh, runway going on, I mean, on the ground, it's vehicles. And apparently, supposedly, an alien creature had been, had gotten out of a UFO and was shot dead by a um, MP on the base. And, and George Filer was didn't get to see I guess didn't get to see the alien as I understand it but he heard the story and was going to be briefing a general and things changed radically is that is that where we're going with this yeah that's that's the story uh you know he he arrives at 5 a.m and he's thinking you know I'm just going to brief the general like I always do but holy cow you know all this activity is going on I'm sure usually it was a very sleepy briefing and not much had happened in the 24 hours but in this case big stuff was going on and people were just overflowing with stories talking about it. But yeah, one side shot the alien, but it crawled over to the other side. So, um, became like a problem for both, uh, both, uh, <laughs> both of the divisions there. But yeah, so he pulls this information together, interviews people and, uh, he's waiting outside the general's door and somebody comes out and says, don't worry about it. We've already briefed him. But, but, the, but the general beckons him in and he says, here's my written report. And that's it, because you could not discuss uh, top secret or above in his office because the fear of bugs. I thought that was really interesting. That was, uh, you know, that was it. You know, how dramatic is that? Here's the report. But 
what I am trying to piece together is when I saw George Filer talk about this, we, we paid um, him to do a talk and brought him down here for the Fun for Evo Research Christmas party one year, and he had fabulous slides, and one of them was a slide that he'd taken himself, and it was a pile of snow with MPs on standing with guns drawn, long guns, on you know, on the snow, and there was about 10 of them around this thing, some just standing on the ground. Some, and he said that, and this is the part where I, I'm trying to piece this together. Apparently, the alien was shot, it was crawling around, whatever. That got removed and flown out of there, but apparently, like, it wasn't until the next day that they discovered this, uh, this pod or, like, this small craft that the alien had used to come down from a larger craft, and that thing was had to be guarded until they could pick it up because in the book it's very pointed that it had the weather had been clear because when he was driving to the base he thought wow the weather is perfectly clear uh, my god all this activity looks like we've had an air crash but that seems weird because um you know we had perfect weather why do we have an air crash he was trying to piece it all together well there was no snow on the ground that that day but then apparently the next day it just snowed a little like an inch an inch and a half just enough and they scraped all the snow together around this this pod to con- conceal it and then put MPs literally standing on the pile of snow i mean here's MPs guarding a pile of snow i have to admit it's a very curious photograph and it does back up that something strange is going on so that always really impressed me but you see no alien george filer saw no alien and if you've got classified material that has been exposed, like in an aircraft accident, you have to guard that. So the fact you've got MPs guarding a pile of snow really doesn't lead us anywhere other than there was something classified hidden under the snow. Right. Something strange definitely went on that had a lot of people excited. You know, I, I believe Filer when he says that. And like you said, he didn't see the alien, but um, well, that I, was, I don't that believe. Was, but there's other that, other witnesses. Other witnesses have come forward, you know. But but we don't have their names. I just yes, one one worked with Dick Hall for quite a while, and he was around a lot, uh, you know, visiting a lot. And um, but the same old story is he had a pseudonym, and, and don't even ask me this. I don't even remember the pseudonym now. You know, when you deal with people and you know the real name and the pseudonym, pretty soon you don't remember anything. So. Uh, so that was a guy that, that Dick Hall believed in, believed he checked out, but uh, we met him. But uh, I, I can't remember much about him now because it just sort of disappeared into the ether. He probably wasn't willing to come forward any more than just talking to Dick. And Dick was trying to find a way to work him into the into the program. But I know Dick and Don uh, believe this the McGuire situation did happen, and they had reasons for that. But uh that's all I know. I, I mean, I like Filer. I think I, he's always been consistent on this story. Um, so I, I don't know why the, the snow pile was left out of the book. You know, he just they just talk about the previous day's activities. But that picture is really, really something. I mean, you know something weird's going on, at the very least. And uh, anyway, that's all I have to say with that. <laughs> well, well, those of you who are interested, as, as she mentioned, I did do a review of the book because we had no power for so long and I had it downloaded on my iPad so I could read it. Um, 
And, and the, the thing that struck me is, unfortunately, there is no way for any of us to corroborate any of that. There's no real names of anybody that we can go to and say, uh, it, it, like Roswell, we have literally 1,500 people who were assigned to the base, and we know who they are, and we've talked to many, many of them. But in this case, we just really don't know anybody, and we can't call somebody up and ask them what they saw or how they were involved. And I understand that that in the world today, you know, you'll get phone calls. Bill Brazel told me that that uh, periodically he'd get phone calls from drunks in bars at two and three o'clock in the morning, wanting to know if the story was true about the the crash at Roswell. And and so you've got people who would be bothering the witnesses endlessly to get their right. their take on it. So you have to be very careful on that sort of thing. Um, we're getting awful close to the end of time here, and I mean the program, not the Earth. Um, <laughs> is there a quick um, Virginia UFO story you want to share with us? And I mean quick, something that's really excited you in the last uh, year or so? Uh, yes, the last case I worked on, and uh, I still haven't pushed the button and completed it, but a couple more things have to come into play. But it's uh, right around the corner from my house, uh, but less than a mile away. Um, uh, a, a mother, you know, her husband works. She's a stay-at-home mom with five kids, which is very rare around here because uh, it's too expensive for that. But she's a she home to home schools five children, but three of her children one night at ten o'clock when they were supposed to be going to bed, they all started making a ruckus, and she finally made it up the stairs and looked out and did not see it. But uh, I did a uh, we're not allowed to see anybody face to face, even though it's a mile away. But we did do a call with everyone in the room, all the kids in the room, and they all described the same thing. And it was uh, two vehicles fairly close to the ground, and they were shaped like stop signs, you know, but with the point up and the point down, and then the parallel sides, the right and the left, were a little bit longer. And they had very curious lighting patterns, uh, white and red, and they were very, very specific about how that was. And it's, it was, it's very strange, very low to the ground, so it wouldn't have been too many people witnessing it. But um, very good witnesses, uh, excellent. They, they were really consistent, and uh, the mother was very good about doing an excellent drawing w with the aid of the children describing it. So I think that was a very, very strange, uh, very strange thing. How old were the children? The children were, were very young. <laughs> uh, well, it was 2, 10, and 13. Now, granted, the two-year-old's not going to add much, but... The, you know, the two-year-olds pointing and going, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, so that's kind of like, a, you know, out of the mouth of babes, you have that. But it had red and white lights. The woman even drew musical notes, and I asked her about that on the drawing, but she, it, she didn't hear anything. It wasn't musical, but she was trying to indicate how one light was going fast, you know, quarter notes, the other one was more like a half note or, and so forth. But it was uh, red and white, and it was not um, bilaterally symmetrical at all, very strange. And they're both exactly the same, but they and they had this very uh, flight pattern, almost like a butterfly. You know, very uh, strange flight pattern. I just, I don't think there's a. That's the only thing I have to cross off is the drone angle. So I want to, um, but I don't think there's any drones that shape. But, um, but yeah, they were they were really good witnesses. She took a picture outside the window in different lighting conditions. I mean, she really did her her job. She she pointed out planets that were visible. Because her, uh, Susan, her Susan, on, like, late game. I have to, yep. I have to cut you off. I have to cut you off because I'm really yep. out of time here. 
<laughs> I appreciate you being on the program. I appreciate all your insights to some of the aspects of the UFO community. Thank you very much for being here on A Different Perspective. Thank you. You have a good day. I do want to mention just one last time, just one last time, folks. Uh, Take a look at the Best of Project Blue Book. I think you'll find some interesting things in there that the Air Force uh, didn't want us to see and probably didn't think we'd ever see um, because if the uh, files were closed. You have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I'll be back in about 167 hours. So thanks for tuning in and look for us in about a week.